Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're gonna to take a little tangent and go back into health rather than the COVID-19. Although of course, there's gonna be a connection because if you are healthy, you're gonna be more resistant to COVID-19. And our guest today, our previous guest, uh, Dr. James D. Nicolatonio, who actually wrote a book with, I think I did, didn't we? Yep, yeah, super, super fuel, that was it. <laughs> so, so after 17 books, it becomes a little murky. <laughs> Uh, and they've written a new book called Win. Uh, and Seem Land, Seem Land, who has been a guest uh, um, multiple episodes previously. Uh, and they've written out three books together. This is their third book together. The first book we interviewed him on was The Immunity Fix, and then followed up with Mineral Fix, although we didn't interview that one because. I thought it was too much of a reference textbook, like almost like an encyclopedia. But this is the this new book, Win, is the practical how-to guide of mineral fix, in my view. Lots of good, powerful, simple strategies to, to for exercise. And um, let me just give my little perspective on exercise, and then we'll dive in because you you've got a lot to share, especially you, James, about. Uh, hydration, which this is probably the best book ever written on hydration, more than likely. So you've done a phenomenal job. Uh, but before we dive into hydration, I just want to give the reason why I think this book is also so important, because it focuses on a big part of it is on exercise and movement. And you've got, in my view, and I'm biased and prejudiced, I think, it, you know, once, especially if you get 40, 50, and certainly 60, if you're not engaging in a regular exercise program, you are heading for catastrophe. You're heading for frailty and sarcopenia and a miserable, and I mean miserable on steroids existence. To not be able to engage in anything you could do when you were younger is beyond uh, not disappointing. Uh, it's just indescribable. You do not want to be there. So the, the only solution, there is no magic pill for it. You've got to engage in regular movement and exercise. And this is, if you are committed to that program of exercise to impact your health positively, then I would strongly encourage you to put this as one of your key books in your reference library, because it's a really great tool to have the knowledge in here so that you can apply it for your exercise and, and succeed and, and, and prevent some of the complications. So strongly, strongly recommended. So congratulations, guys. I mean, I love the book the first time I read it. And, uh, and I don't endorse, I mean, you've been on previously, but the last book you wrote, I didn't think was so great. So I didn't, I didn't have you on for it because, but this one is, this one is good. So, um, oh gosh, I got one big question for both of you before we engage in the hydration, which I think is going to consist of the majority of this, uh, interview, but the book and either of you can answer, but both of you should, is uh, relates, because I don't think it was addressed well in the book. And it's uh, the issue of ingesting calories before exercise. 
And it's clear that if you admit that there's a lot of controversy on this and many experts believe that you should have carbs and protein before you work out because you'll be able to work out stronger. But it, so that's one point. The other side, and this is what I'd like you to, to respond to, is that it, and seeing his, his first book, Metabolic Autophagy, was beyond brilliant. It was really one of the best books I've ever read. And he dives really, and if you don't have that book, you need to pick that up. But metabolic autophagy goes deep into the biochemistry of why autophagy is so important. And in my view, if you're going to engage in a regular exercise program, you're going to want to exercise fasting to, to maximize those autophagy benefits. So uh, both, can both of you respond to that primary question of when should, should we exercise what time? I mean, obviously you can exercise better if it's in the afternoon, but if you're going to exercise fasting in the morning, I think you're going to maximize autophagy benefits. So why don't you give us your opinion on that? I think it's important to train both uh, in a fasted state as well as loading with complex carbs about an hour before at least vigorous exercise. And the reason is, is you want to, you want metabolic adaptations for both systems, one utilizing fat for fuel in a fasted state, and also the ability to utilize glucose. Um, Essentially, if you are, if you're exercising in a fasted state, your body's going to be better at utilizing fat for fuel and it's going to help spare glycogen, which is, which is important for anaerobic performance. Um, so, so basically training in a fasted state actually not only helps you, um, from, from the perspective of, uh, basically moderate intensity exercise, but it will actually help, um, more vigorous exercise performance as well through sparing of glycogen, because you're able to utilize the fat for fuel better. And you're probably going to burn fat better in a fasted state as well. But the data is very clear that if you are performing um, at a vigorous pace, essentially 70% VO2 max or higher, preloading with about you know, 50 grams of complex carbs is absolutely going to help preserve muscle uh, glycogen levels and improve performance, both from uh, endurance, but as well as like a, a peak power output standpoint. Yeah, I, I think it also depends on like, you know, the goal. Um, because like I said, you know, there's different, um, ways to train and, uh, let's say different reasons to do that as well. Like let's say for an athlete, it does make a lot more sense to have some carbs and it's food in their system because, you know, uh, arguably their performance would be just better. And if they are competing in something, then, uh, they need to also train at least a near peak performance, uh, all the time, uh, to a certain extent to, to be all, be able to also like perform at competition. So it wouldn't make sense to, let's say, go to the Olympics in a fast state or something like sure, that. Sure, sure. Uh, so, uh, like, yeah, when I write, say an average person, I, I know, of course there are like some merit to also training periodically in a fast state or a low glycogen state to build up this metabolic flexibility and fat adaptation. But, uh, from a progressive overload perspective, which means that you actually get better over time and get stronger or faster, whatever the sport is, then you would need to at least, you know, have some food um, or some calories, at least in some shape or form to help you to push yourself uh, further. Um, there are like some cases, let's say easier exercise sessions, like you're maybe doing mobility exercises or just regular cardio, hiking, those kind of things. Uh, very like low intensity cardiovascular exercise then in that case even like high high level athletes could train in a faster state but uh, let's say yeah more more like like athletic sports uh bodybuilding strength training um weightlifting um crossfit whatever it it would be better for like just the performance side performance side to uh have some uh, calories beforehand okay so i i disagree a bit uh because 
but but, but I think it, the answer the answers are brilliant because it does really target it to the, the individual. So if you're young like you seem and you're competing and you're active and especially if you're in a competition, you're going to need those those to, to pump up the gly the glycogen reserves in your muscle. Otherwise, you're not going to be performing as well. But if you're beyond those years, <laughs> you're not yeah. interested in competing in any way, shape, or form, except for the centenarian Olympics. They'd be able to compete and do all the things you were doing at 20 when you're 100 years old. Then I think you're really going to want to pay a lot more closest attention to autophagy, the repair and regeneration of everything that goes on. And there's, there's nothing that depletes glycogen from your muscles more effectively than exercising in a fasted state. I mean, you're going to just maximally upregulate autophagy when you do that, which is why yeah. I almost exclusively have, have because I, you know, yeah. I approach but, but, 70. Yeah. Well, the thing is also, we don't know uh, what, like we do know that exercise both and fasting, both of them increase autophagy. And we don't really know whether or not exercising, well, I would imagine that exercising in a fat state also increases autophagy. Maybe you get a bit less, uh, but there is still some upregulation of autophagy that occurs in that state, uh, especially because of exercise. So exercise is a still a very powerful stimulant. And if you were, let's say, uh, if you're able to train harder, for example, then you're maybe also, you know, the intensity is higher, and then you're able to, you know, reach autophagy in that faster in that sense as well. So it, uh, yeah, there are like yeah, awesome benefits. Like, you know, like what I what I do is like I do have some workouts fasted, but I do have a lot of the times where I have like some calories in my system. Um, I personally do like a protein shake, uh, which is like easier to digest and things like that. Uh, but let's say exercising always in a fasted state can also lead to like, muscle catabolism, and uh, that can also be harmful for let's say the elderly. So uh, even for the elderly, it can be somewhat good to you know, periodically at least have some calories in their system, uh, especially like amino acids in their bloodstream uh, during the exercise to uh, help to prevent uh, this muscle catabolism. So along those lines, you know, one of the things you want to do when you're exercising is to activate mTOR. Uh, and a precursor, and the best way to do that is, well, not the best, but one way to do that is the branched-chain aminos, specifically leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And one of the the metabolic byproducts of leucine, as I understand it, is hydroxymethylbutyrate, or also known as HMB. So uh, what are your views on taking HMB pre or post-workout? There's some evidence, particularly in catabolic states, that HMB may be beneficial. I think um, the jury's still out. Uh, I mean, some of the studies show dramatic improvements uh, in muscle gains utilizing it. Um, but I think um, the, the evidence is pretty controversial. So I think Personally, I, I can't necessarily recommend it outside of like uh, really low caloric intake states to help preserve muscle mass. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. And uh, I think the, the use case would be yeah, like in this uh, more uh, sarcopenic conditions, like uh, the elderly or uh, in low calorie states or low protein diets, they may have like more protective effects. But if you're getting over enough protein in your diet, um, then you probably don't need it. Yeah, I definitely want to talk on the protein levels because you do a really good job of describing those two. And I think a lot of people are confused about this. So we want to talk about that after the hydration. So let's skip back to that. What I believe is the highlight and really the premier content in the book is the exploration of, of, um, exp of using uh, hydration as a very powerful tool to optimize your health and, and uh, workout. So James, why don't you lead it off since you did most of the work on that, that, that part? Sure. So basically hydration and how you want to hydrate is similar to what we were just talking about in regards to um, different what you want to do it different ways. One in regards to 
boosting performance acutely is going to be different. Your hydration strategy is going to be different versus getting gains later on. Mm-hmm. And so really, if you're in a training camp, you always want to make sure you're coming well, in. What do you, what do you mean by training camp? Like if you're, if you're a high competitive athlete and you are essentially, um, basically training three months out before competitions, you have a while, you have a while to train to actually get better gains later on. Then you want to practice something called dehydration acclimation because it's multiple sessions of dehydration that will lead to adaptations where you will get expansion of baseline blood volume and all these other adaptations where you're actually performing better later on. Your training may suffer a little bit um, performing dehydration acclimation. And I'll, I'll t- I can talk about, about the strategies on how to do that. And then you simply rehydrate re- after, uh, after the workout and you, and you get those, those metabolic adaptations. And then before performance or competition, you do basically salt loading with high doses of salt and, and fluids about 90 minutes prior. And that's going to dramatically boost blood volume and increase performance. But you don't always want to use high doses of salt because you want adaptations to being in a, let's say, dehydrated state. So there's really three ways to hydrate. If you if you don't feel like you have a lot of energy before a training camp, you probably want to take 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams of sodium and about 10 to 20 ounces of fluid, respectively, just to get um, basically a blood volume expansion of about 3% so you can train uh, fairly well. And the goal then is to actually lose about one and a half to two and a half percent of your body weight through sweat, which will induce mild dehydration. And then you do that multiple times and you get dehydration acclimation. So, so what, excuse me, when you're making the recommendations of milligrams of sodium, it would help, I think, if you, we translated that into teaspoons or quarter teaspoons of salt. Sure. So uh, basically a thousand milligrams of sodium is just under a half a teaspoon of salt. So we're talking about a half a teaspoon to maybe a full teaspoon of salt with 10 to 20 ounces of fluid. And that will, if you have low energy, that will definitely help to make sure you at least have a good training session, but you still will be able to induce likely mild dehydration and then get the, all the acclimation benefits after that. Now that's going to expand, you know, between one and 2000 milligrams of sodium and, and 10 to 20 ounces of fluid, that's only going to expand blood volume, maybe three to 4%. You really, if you want to acutely boost performance dramatically, you want to get eight to 10% increases in blood volume. Because you, the blood volume drops within five minutes of vigorous exercise by about eight to 10% because blood flows away from the heart towards working skeletal muscle. So there's a relative drop of blood volume feeding the heart by eight to 10%, which is really the, the main linchpin decreasing athletic performance. So if you can get ahead of the problem and you can take appropriate salt solutions prior to performance, you can prevent the eight to 10% drop in blood volume and dramatically improve performance. And When I say dramatically improved performance, there's nothing better. Nothing even comes close to preloading with salt and fluid. So to give you an example, beta alanine can increase the time of vigorous exercise performance by a minute. Taking salt solutions can increase exercise time by anywhere from typically 10 to over 20 minutes. So it's 10 to 20 times more effective than your basically your best pre-workout that's out on the market. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of beta alanine because it's a it's the rate limiting amino acid for the formation of carnosine. And if you, especially if you're a vegetarian or not eating many animal products, because carnosine may have a far other bet, I think more significant clinical benefits than attenuating dehydration or athletic performance or improving athletic performance. Cause it's major primary benefit is to serve as a sacrificial sink for these uh, N-lipoxate oxidation end products that uh, people get from having too many uh, seed oils. 
So I think it should be in everyone's uh, regimen, this beta alanine. Yeah, I mean, and advanced glycation on products. Yeah, 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 age, age too. But the ALEs, I think, are more, more significant. But yeah, if you're especially if you're pre-diabetic, like so many people are. Right, and and one other way to actually um, boost carnosine levels that actually might be tolerated even better, unless you can get like a, a delayed release or long-acting beta alanine, is actually magnesium orotate. Orotate is actually a long-acting. Oh, what's the mechanism? Uh, orotate converts into um, beta alanine. Um, and then into carnosine in the liver. So it's a, it's wow. actually, a, it's actually a delayed release uh, beta alanine. What type but of expensive. Magnesium or orotatus is terribly expensive. Um, but still, it's, it's just another way if you're getting those pins and needles from beta alanine, um, if you can't find a delayed release or long acting supplement, that's one potential way around it. Nice, nice pearl. Very good. Yeah. All right. So, um... Yeah, so confirm that beta alanine or magnesium orotate would be good, or carnosine. I mean, you could buy carnosine, but it's not as cost effective, and you know, it winds up being broken down to beta alanine anyway. So, right. So, so taking basically like taking beta alanine to boost carnosine is sort of like taking N-acetylcysteine, right, to boost cysteine. It's the, it's you're taking like something that helps that like the precursor to it, which is better than taking the actual substance that you're trying to boost. Yeah. Um, well, I, I would say to include. Incre- increased glutathione might be more accurate since it's one of the precursors of it, right? Well, it may increase glutathione. It's, it's what it's doing is it's boosting cysteine. And then there's three amino acids to form glutathione, whether it will go to forming glutathione or not will depend on the need of the body and how well it is able to right. convert it. Um, but we're sort of, we're sort of kind of sidetracking, but yeah, I know, I know, I know. I, sorry about that, but I mean, you, no, no, that's fine. So here's just a wealth of knowledge. So Let's, let's go back to the hydration because it's so important. So what's really key here is that most people think plain hydration is water intake. This is sort of like what we turn basically on its head in the book is that actually just hydrating with plain water can actually have numerous uh, basically negatives towards both types of performance, both vigorous and endurance exercise. So to give you an example, Um, when you consume just five ounces of water in 15 minutes, um, that exceeds gastric emptying. So when you're vigorously exercising, gastric emptying dramatically goes down. So if you drink too much water, you're going to bloat the system. Water's just going to sit in the stomach and you can actually decrease vigorous exercise performance by two and a half percent, just drinking water, which is what most people think is going to help them. And so that's, that's the problem in vigorous exercise. In endurance exercise, drinking plain water dramatically increases hyponatremia or low sodium levels in the blood, which can kill you. So having salt in a solution is not just important for vigorous exercise, but also endurance exercise. And we can sort of go into some of the the details of the studies and, and how you should be basically formulating these solutions. But that was one key thing that when I was doing research for the book is that, wow, actually drinking water can have numerous harms on the body, including increasing the risk of uh, muscle cramps. It's been drinking plain water has been shown to increase the susceptibility of skeletal muscle to electrically induced muscle cramps. So again, salt and electrolytes are playing key roles here at reducing muscle cramps, especially in in performance in the heat. Yeah. I would imagine it's even exacerbated further when you're fasting. 100% it is because essentially what we think causes a muscle cramp is um, you get a basically contraction of the interstitial fluid and you get mechanical deformation 
um, of the nerve endings and that can induce muscle cramps. So you really, you want to expand interstitial fluid, expand blood volume to reduce the risk of muscle cramps. And if you get the salt solution dosing correct, it can decrease heart rate by nine to 10 beats per minute. It can increase exercise duration by 20 to 21 minutes, which is essentially anywhere from 25 to 50% increase in how long you can exercise vigorously, which is crazy when you think about it. And it can decrease core body temperature by three quarters of a degree Fahrenheit because we lose water from our blood volume to dissipate heat through sweat. And so if you have more fluid, you can cool off better. You'll have better um, sweat rates and that can evaporate, uh, obviously, and cool you down quicker. So it keeps core body temperature lower simply by drinking salt solutions before exercise. If we have time, we'll go into some other strategies for that you address in a book about that are relatively new, how to lower core body temperature and the benefits of that. Yeah, lowering core body temperature is super important because at a certain point, um, you start inhibiting enzymes that produce ATP, like phosphofructokinase and pyruvate kinase. They're very temperature, not just pH sensitive, which they are too, and the acidosis inhibits those enzymes as well during vigorous exercise performance. But um, that also, uh, heat will inhibit um, ATP producing enzymes uh, in, in the mitochondria. So th there's so many elements to the, the hydration. One is the getting the uh, electrolyte distribution in the water with the salt concentration or other additives you can use to improve that. So why don't you discuss some of those things like glycine, the amino acid and the importance of that and, and some of these alkalinizing salts like sodium bicarb or sodium citrate that can even further enhance the benefits of this hydration protocol. Sure. So you can get some benefits if you get about 2000 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid. Um, that seems to be like sort of the minimum threshold to get at least about a three to 4% increase in blood volume. But really the top benefits are when you start hitting 3000 to 4,300 milligrams of sodium, which is essentially like one and a half to two teaspoons of salt, basically around per liter um, of fluid. But when you hit those higher amounts, you can get eight to 10% increases in blood volume and, and, get, and get dramatic uh, improvements in performance. And essentially how you do this, you're almost matching the saltiness of your blood. This is why it works is because your blood is 3,200 milligrams of sodium per liter. So if you get close to that or actually slightly hypertonic, slightly saltier than that, you're going to boost blood volume the best and you're going to absorb salt and fluids the best when you have that type of concentration. And we, we actually learned this through astronauts in NASA. So what would end up happening uh, decades ago was we were sending astronauts in outer space um, for days and cardiac deconditioning would happen where their blood volume would dramatically drop because there's no longer gravity pulling on them. And then upon re-entry, upon you know, entering Earth's gravity, astronauts were passing out. So if you want to learn about hydration, you, you, you go to NASA because they had to figure out how to actually prevent blood volume drops upon re-entry. And that's where some of the data comes from. But essentially, um, these, these astronauts basically prehydrate two hours prior to upon re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere to prevent passing out. And so basically, that's almost what you do during exercise. You start drinking these salt solutions 90 minutes prior, and you slowly drink them over about 30 minutes. And one of the key here is, is you don't want glucose in the solution. Glucose will actually increase diuresis and dehydrate you compared to just plain 
uh, salt and fluids. And then adding glycine, which is an amino acid, is much better than adding glucose because glycine can actually help drive and an increase sodium's absorption into the intestine and it decreases core body temperature. That's how it helps you fall asleep better. So and the third benefit of glycine is that it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter and probably helps reduce muscle cramps. So you're getting kind of killing three birds with one stone when you take glycine with these salt solutions. Um, and again, it's going to help in both, you know, regular ambient temperature and in the heat. Did not realize that the glycine inhibited muscle cramps. Did you mention that in the book? So actually, we did. I did mention that in the book, how we think pickle juice works so quickly. Oh, that's right. right? Yes. There's been two studies showing that pickle juice at about two and a half ounces can can abort a muscle cramp within 30 to 90 seconds. And it can't be due to volume expansion and interstitial Mm -hmm. fluid expansion would never happen that quick. It's the acetic acid in the pickle juice we think that releases glycine and that basically aborts a muscle cramp a muscle cramp. Now we would still need confirmatory studies to prove this. You you really want to basically, um, you'd have to use animal models to do that, but, but essentially that's theoretically how we think pickle juice works so quickly. Yeah. Well, that is a definite pearl from watching this video for sure, (laughs) because muscle cramps are the worst. Most all of us have had them and we don't want to get them again. So if you have a tendency uh, to get those, either use glycine and or pickle juice. Absolutely. I mean, the reason is, is we, we lose salt in our sweat at a tremendous rate. The average sodium loss per liter of sweat is 1200 milligrams. And that can dramatically go up depending on the person and depending how hot it is. And so if you're constantly sweating out salt and you're taking caffeine, which is a huge salt waster, coffee, four cups of coffee causes you to lose a half a teaspoon of salt then you can quickly become salt depleted and that can induce muscle cramps and lead to overtraining syndrome. Yeah, I think I neglected to mention on the intro that uh, you're most famously noted for your first book, which is the, the, the salt fix. So you, you, you're clearly uh, our expert in the literature with salt and sodium. Yeah, I think um, I tried to translate a lot of the, the salt fix was more focused on diet and cardiovascular effects. And then uh, basically took a lot of that research and then translated it to athletic performance. But like you said, if we should be exercising to grow new mitochondria and to improve, you know, mitophagy, then we're going to need automatically, we're going to need more salt. In fact, if you exercise one hour a day, you balance studies show you need 5,000 milligrams of sodium just to remain not only in salt balance, but salt controls magnesium and calcium, because if you don't have enough salt, the body will pull sodium from bone to maintain a normal blood level, but it also pulls magnesium and calcium. So if you don't get enough salt, it can actually lead to negative magnesium and calcium balance. So all these electrolytes are highly interconnected. So I, I'm cur- particularly curious as we, you know, I opened up with the question about should you exercise fasting or with food? And I'm wondering if the benefits of the proper hydration protocol that you just described would com- favorably boost the exercise enough as th- for a person, or if it's even been looked at, I don't know, but I'm curious as to what your, your guess is. The uh, difference between someone who's fasting and with a hydration pro- protocol versus who's repleted with food and no hydration protocol. That's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure if I'm 100% following, but essentially the more 
basically are the less you have on board regarding electrolytes, regarding calories, regarding carbs, you're going to get more metabolic adaptations later on. Your training will suffer at that point, but as long as you rehydrate afterwards appropriately, um, then you're actually going to get better gains later on. So how you want to rehydrate, and there's a simple calculation to do this, is if you lose on average 1200 milligrams of sodium, which is a half a teaspoon of salt per liter of fluid, you simply weigh yourself before and after training sessions. One liter of fluid is one kilogram. If you lose a full kilogram through sweat, you want to make sure you're replacing that 1200 milligrams of sodium back that you lost, which is the average loss of sodium per liter of fluid loss. Okay. So I actually, the question was a little bit different though. That's good to know about the rehydration protocol. That's useful information. But the question, Steve, you, you got it. Did you, you understand? Well, I think, right? I think like, yeah, like the, you know, person, I, I do think that, um, you know, hydration and electrolytes are more, let's say, paramount to just overall muscle function and performance. So that if you're, let's say, getting a muscle cramp, then it doesn't matter how many calories you have on board or how many carbs you ate. So I think that the electrolytes are more important. And, you know, you know, being in a fasted state isn't going to uh, be that big of a detriment to your performance, especially if you're used to it or if you're fat adapted and you're used to training fasted, then it will have a slightly less of a negative effect compared to someone who hasn't done that at all. And it also depends on yeah, how long have you been fasting for? Like if you've right, been fasting right. for only like less than 16 hours, then it probably doesn't have like any serious uh, negative effect. And uh, the uh, hydration protocol could be uh, at, at least equally as good as the just uh, eating uh, the, the, the food beforehand um, and not hydrating properly. So at least, there, at least I would imagine that would be equal. Uh, but if we're talking about, let's say, a longer fast, maybe 24 hours or 48 hours, then probably mm -hmm. the food will be still better in that scenario. Okay, yeah, that's that's the point. Is that it, it seems like it's the perfect uh, addition if you want to persist in exercising fasted, which I still think is a good strategy if you're elderly, but to enhance your performance and and allow your body to do more work to get the exercise gains, you integrate this hydration protocol, which is so. Why don't you go over the hydration protocol again because it's so so important. And, and talk about the sodium bicarb and sodium citrate too. Sure. So if, if the protocol is to improve performance later on, it's essentially just drinking when you're thirsty because that'll leave you mildly dehydrated. And, and the goal would be to drop body weight through sweat loss of about one and a half to two and a half percent after your training. And then you're going to, you do that multiple times and you become dehydrated, acclimated. You get all the benefits of that, like a better baseline blood volume, better sweat rates, better, better ability to cool off. Um, you lose less electrolytes through sweat as well when you be, when you become dehydrated, acclimated. Um, and and uh, basically, when you have a more dilute sweat, it evaporates faster and you literally become a better cooling machine. And this is how heat acclimation through sauna sessions works as well. It is There's numerous metabolic adaptations. And then you simply rehydrate using that formula of 1200 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid loss during your training. If you're looking to acutely boost performance, then you want to drink about 3000 to 40, 300 milligrams of sodium in anywhere from 26 ounces to a full liter respectively. And you start drinking those solutions 90 minutes before competition or before exercise. And you slowly drink those fluids over 30 to 60 minutes. And you can add about four to six grams of glycine to improve the absorption of the sodium and to decrease core body temperature. So, so how long have you been doing this? 
for increasing performance? I've probably been doing this for about a year. What have you um, noticed? What have you noticed? Oh my gosh. I mean, this doesn't just translate to endurance performance. Power output is dramatically increased. If you're, if you lift heavy weights, mm-hmm. preload with salt and, and fluids and see how much more you can lift and how, how <laughs> what, you what have you noticed? What have you noticed? Have yeah. You noticed? I, I noticed very similar to what occurs in the studies, uh, anywhere from a 25 to 50% increase in how long I can vigorously exercise, but also increases in, um, dramatic reductions in feeling dizzy um, and, and being able to, you know, do more reps and increases in power output as well. So let me, I'll, sh- I'll actually cite a, a good study that showed that salt solutions increase power output and, and just, and show you how dramatic it is. Mm-hmm. This study only boosted blood volume by 4%. So it wasn't even an optimal salt solution per uh, boost, but it was a 15 minute time trial of cyclists. Mm-hmm. They were able to cycle a full kilometer longer in 15 minutes by preloading with salt and fluids. That's a lot to be able to cycle one kilometer more in the same time frame. That's that's a huge power output increase. It's about 10. percent Wow, that's amazing. So, Seam, have you uh, applied this protocol? Because you work out pretty vigorously. I mean, you're uh, are you a competitive bodybuilder now too? I thought I, I thought that <laughs> no, was no, no, I'm not. No, not. Uh, I have, I have like done a few uh, competitions, uh, maybe like I don't know, six years ago. But uh, yeah, not at the moment. <laughs> uh, but uh, I do, yeah, do notice a huge difference as well when you are properly hydrated and uh, especially with electrolytes, uh, because and I, actually for, on my own case, I can notice a bit more because I am like fasting as well a lot and uh, I uh, I do work out semi-fasted, so I haven't like really eaten. Uh, like an actual solid food before my uh, workout. And uh, if I don't, let's say, um, have the uh, sodium and uh, the electrolytes, then I do notice that my, let's say, uh, at least like the, the risk of cramps is much higher and uh, just, yeah, like not able to push that hard. And this kind of injury risk is also higher because of that. Like, uh, because I think I'm stronger, <laughs> but because I'm not properly hydrated, then I'm actually weaker and uh, may get, you know, something. Uh, difficult situations in that sense. So I do note, yeah, because I'm fasting, then I do notice a bigger effect uh, being uh, hydrated with salt and uh, fluids versus uh, not. Yeah, I mean, you probably notice that too, because glycogen holds water. So if yeah. you're in a fasted state and you're depleting yourself of glycogen, right? One molecule of glycogen is, you know, the literature varies, but you know, three to four molecules of water. So and you're in a fasted state, you're all, your muscles are already severely dehydrated versus being, you know, preloaded with carbs. So Hydration is going to have a more dramatic improvement in your performance if you're in a fasted state anyway. Um, so that's interesting. Now, what was really my, this is my mind boggling is how much minerals and electrolytes you lose through sweat, not just salt, but copper, um, particularly in the sauna. I mean, you can lose upwards of 1.5 milligrams of copper per liter of fluid loss. Okay. And most people are only consuming maybe one milligram per day. So you can lose more than your daily intake in just an hour of a sauna session. And this includes things like selenium, chromium, um, calcium, magnesium, all these electrolytes get lost in a tremendous amount, uh, basically through the heat push, you know, the higher you go to in temperature, which is why I'm kind of targeting sauna is, you know, increasing the loss of those electrolytes. Well, I'm a a big fan of sauna, huge. I'm doing a lot more interviews on it this later this year, but uh, I've, put together a uh, basically a near infrared sauna with heat lamps and it's about 160 degrees and the 160 in a heat lamp sauna is hot. 
And only 20 minutes of that, I will lose a half a gallon of water, 20 minutes. Right. I'm sweating like a river for the most part. So I didn't know you lose that, lost that much uh, copper. Are there other minerals that we need to be concerned about? Yeah, here's the key too. The bioavailability of copper in the diet is only 30 to 50%. So if, yeah. you, if you lose, let's say, right, one and a half milligrams, you got to eat two and a half to replace it. And that's the key with chromium. Chromium's bioavailability is only 1%. So if you lose seven micrograms of chromium, you got to consume 700 to get that back. And, then, and, and that's the average loss, at least based on the two metabolic studies that we cite, um, that you lose about seven micrograms of chromium. And you also lose about 50 to 100 micrograms of iodine per hour of exercise. So getting iodine back too is important um, for thyroid hormone function and things like that. And we, we have a table that lays out the average losses for minerals per hour of you know, sweat, per, per liter of sweat loss. Um, but there's, like you said, there's huge benefits of, of sauna going into the sauna post-exercise, uh, basically two every day for two weeks, um, dramatically increases um, how long you can vigorously exercise for by about 20%. So um, athletes did this, they averaged four and a half sauna sessions a week for three weeks with a total of 13 sessions at about 190 Fahrenheit in a traditional sauna. And they went in about 20 to 30 minutes each day they were able to increase how long they could vigorously exercise from 14 minutes to 18. So, so they gained four minutes of how long they could vigorously exercise for. Part of the reason this is because of the, the, the acclimations, the, the increase in blood volume at baseline, the dilution of the sweat so you can cool yourself off faster. And as you become more heat acclimated though, you have to use more heat and longer duration to maintain the adaptation. So you have to hit about an internal core temp of about 101.3 to become heat acclimated. Yeah. And so that becomes harder and harder to do as you become more heat acclimated. But you can actually maintain those gains after you do sauna session for two to three weeks, as long as you exercise for up to two weeks. Um, and then you want to probably do sauna at least every other day to maintain the heat acclimation benefits. Yeah. And it's, it's the other benefits. And what I actually seen did a podcast on uh, not a podcast, but well, I guess a podcast on melatonin. And uh, I just read some really interesting results on the, the benefit of near infrared to increase mitochondrial melatonin, which is like virtually not known by anyone. I was, it's seemed didn't seem to be aware of that, but uh, I think that's one of the hidden benefits of sauna exposure. If, if you're doing a, near infrared sauna far infrared will not produce melatonin or a traditional sauna so uh that that is huge from my perspective but yeah it's it's great so one of the let me let me get back to the hydration formula um i noticed that personally when i'm doing heavy lifts especially the legs i'm doing leg presses really aggressive where i push it to the limit almost failure and going up heavy uh that after i finish that i get really dizzy so I'll, and I didn't really understand until you explained it, it was probably the uh, uh, inadequate hydration. Right. Because the, the blood flow to the skeletal muscle, especially to the legs is now dramatically increasing, dropping blood flow to the brain. And that's why you're getting a huge increase in dizziness and, and fainting and collapse in, in those type of exercises. So maintaining good blood volume and good blood circulation with salt solutions is going to help prevent that. So I'm, I'm wondering how many athletes or professional trainers or I guess trainers more specifically would are, know this information and are recommending it because it seems like it's relatively new and not widely adopted. I don't know a single um, person 
who hasn't discussed this with me and, and me giving them that information besides perhaps maybe Tim Noakes, who actually knows this because it's not in any um, athletic performance guidelines. And mm-hmm. the reason probably is, is because um, number one, some of the studies didn't show as much benefits, um, but I covered the reasons why, because they inappropriately used lower, lower doses of, of sodium and the concentration wasn't correct and they didn't boost blood volume good. And you have to look at it from the perspective of the population too, of who's being tested it's not going to really benefit too much a moderately exercising person, but someone who's vigorously exercising, it's going to show dramatic benefits too. So I think um, I've never seen anything laid out. We have 50 pages on hydration alone in, in the book, and I don't really know anyone that's t- really talking about this. Well, the, uh, the other component of your book that I neglected to mention that half of the book is references. <laughs> it's just like I was listening to the book for a big portion of it, and it was being... Uh, spoken and reading the words and it got to be really annoying because it's like every other line there was reading a number you know it's like for the reference because <laughs> there's thousands of references in your book so it's very well referenced You're, that, that no one could really throw a criticism that you didn't research this material well enough so um but but let's get back to the you, you talk about alkalizing the benefits of that and we haven't covered that yet so why don't you review the, that and the, the protocols and using the bicarb as, as uh, in addition to the so- sodium and the glycine? Yeah, so there's a common misconception that uh, delayed onset muscle soreness is due to lactic acid um, or lactate. And lactate is actually the beneficial molecule pulling the acid, which is actually hydrogen ions out of the cell. So lactate is actually a good molecule. We actually use it uh, as fuel during exercise. It just correlates with high acid in the cell. And that's why, uh, you know, there's this myth that lactate is bad for you. I mean, it's not, it's nothing further could be from the truth. It works back to glucose, doesn't it? Metabolic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's recycled back to glucose. Yeah, the liver does that. And um, it's just one of those important molecules to buffer acid. And when you vigorously exercise, when you go anaerobic, you produce a lot of hydrogen ions because ATP demand exceeds supply. And when that happens, you just automatically basically retain acid. Now, if you can get ahead of the problem, just like salt solutions, and you can hit peak alkalosis, which is essentially boosting your bicarbonate levels and decreasing the pH or the decreasing the acidity in the blood, you can dramatically improve performance. Um, And that's because many enzymes in the mitochondria are pH sensitive. And as the cell becomes more acidic, it will shut down those enzymes and reduce ATP production and muscle will, will eventually cease to work. So a lot of people don't believe that you can make the body more alkaline. Well, it's clear you can because you can boost bicarbonate levels using you know, things like sodium bicarbonate or sodium citrate. A lot of people also don't believe that diet has anything to do with the acid base balance in the body. And it does because from a physiological perspective, the kidneys can only get rid of anywhere from 40 to 70 milliequivalents of acid before it starts retaining one milliequivalent of acid for every two and a half milliequivalents above that threshold. And then in order to get rid of that retained acid, you have to breathe it out. But in order to breathe out acid, you have to deplete one molecule of bicarbonate. So yes, you can breathe out acid, but it's not a free lunch. You will deplete your bicarbonate levels. So this is why you do need to balance if you're like an animal-based on an animal-based diet or a carnivore diet, you need to be consuming some type of bicarbonate forming substance, whether it be sodium citrate or sodium bicarbonate to offset the acid load of the diet. 
It is crucial. And I think anyone who's eat, who is engaging in a higher meat diet is being negligent if they don't address this because you're going to get way too acidic. And you can easily, I don't know if you discussed in this book, but I know that you can easily measure the pH of your, your, your body fluids with uh, just doing a first morning urine. And, and we, with litmus paper, just checking it with litmus paper and you want to get to, it has different colors, but you go to the color like about 7.4 or so. And most people are in the sixes or even lower. Yeah, the best way to actually test if you're using a urinary pH is actually about four hours after you eat because there's something called an alkaline tide and you actually don't want to do first morning. You, it'll artificially say you're a little too acidic than what actually is going on. So four mm -hmm. hours after you eat, you do want to be in a quote unquote fasted state, but, but mm -hmm. you don't want to be first morning actually. So basically four hours after breakfast is probably the best way to take a urinary pH. Mm -hmm. If your urine pH is less than 6.8, you're very highly likely retaining acid. Um, mm -hmm. and probably half the population is probably has a urinary pH of 6.8 or less. Mm -hmm. um, and here's the key too. A lot of people, you'll get your blood pH tested and you'll be in a normal range, but we start off at about 7.43 and we slowly go down to 7.36 and we're still considered normal. Well, you've just dramatically increased the acidity of your, even of your blood and yet you're still considered normal. And your bicarbonate levels by the time your pH, blood pH hits 7.36 is probably in the tank. You really want bicarb levels of 28 to 30 milliequivalents. Um, and before performance, you really want those bicarb levels to about 35 milliequivalents per liter. So you, you mentioned you could also use citrates. And um, I don't think this was discussed in the book, but the citrates have another benefit in that they bind to oxalates. And oxalate, um, consumption is really a pretty massively overlooked area of diet, something that Sally Norton has discussed quite, and I've actually done an interview with her in the past, but it's a hidden, hidden source of a lot of diseases. So uh, you, you need to be careful about foods that are ostensibly healthy, like Swiss chard or kale that are really loaded with oxalates and can really cause them a load of, of problems. But if you're taking citrates, it actually binds to that and helps your body excrete them so they don't damage you. So um, you talk about sodium citrate and just mentioned it as, as another way to, to alkalinize your body. But what about the other citrate salts like magnesium or potassium would be the big ones or even calcium citrate. And have you come up with a uh, sort of an ideal combination formula to alkalinize your body because almost everyone watching this would likely need well first everyone watching i sincerely believe needs to measure the urine ph and, and thank you for that modification i thought first morning urine was was a standard but four hours after your big meal would be a better way to do this and just measure it the, the, the litmus paper on, on wherever you get it it's, it's pretty cheap it's only a few dollars it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg and you right. can you can measure it yourself and see if this if, if you're if you need to be supplementing. So let us know what your view are on the citrates, the citrate salts, and the bicarb, and an ideal formulation to compensate for this acidosis. The reason why I like sodium citrate is you can get a lot more citrate per volume versus potassium citrate, which is and it's tougher on the stomach too. Potassium citrate and uh, where sodium citrate is tolerated better. But you make a good point. The reason why I like sodium citrate versus sodium bicarbonate is you're not um, increasing the pH of the stomach with citrate, um, whereas sodium bicarbonate, that is going to alkalinize the stomach as well. And mm. you can get into issues with that. So 
the key here is that most studies dosing studies. Hey, hey, excuse me, excuse me, interrupt, but just explain why, because there's a metabolic transformation that occurs, that's why that happens. Right. So it's super. So essentially, when you are consuming bicarbonate, it's it's making the stomach pH increase, and you're diluting the acid of your stomach. You need acid in order to digest food and absorb nutrients. It's super important. So if you start messing with the pH of your stomach, that's not good because you might not be able to digest food well. And, that, and that's how we kill pathogens too. Foodborne illness will go up as well if you. And chloride is important, which is part of salt, to actually form hydrochloric acid in the stomach acid. The reason why I like sodium citrate is because you're not dumping bicarbonate into the gut and you're not decreasing um, the acidity of the stomach. Um, the key here, though, is that most studies have inappropriately dosed sodium citrate much too close to exercise to show benefits. It takes longer to form bicarbonate in the body when you take citrate versus taking bicarbonate. So you actually should be dosing sodium citrate about four hours before performance to get to a peak alkalosis state. And what's great about citrate too is if it doesn't get converted to bicarbonate, citrate's actually better than bicarbonate in regards to improving alkalinity because one molecule of citrate can bind three hydrogen ions whereas it's a one-to-one binding of bicarbonate to wow. hydrogen. So citrate really is a, just an amazing way to alkalinize the body. And does citrate do that directly, binding the, the um, hydrogen ions, or does it does it the citrate itself get metabolically conformed, transformed into bicarb? Both. So if, it, if it's there to, to pick up a hydrogen ion, it will directly bind three per citrate molecule. Okay. If it transforms to bicarbonate, it'll be a one-to-one binding. Okay, all right. Yeah. One yeah. molecule of citrate for every molecule of bicarb. It's one-to-one conversion from citrate to bicarb. It's a one-to-one conversion, um, but the molecule itself, citrate, can bind three hydrogen ions. Okay. Yeah, I, got, I got that. Okay, so that's good. Is it the same for the other forms? I mean, like you like sodium citrate better than the others because you can get more in and it's more easily tolerated, but is it the same benefit of binding hydrogen ions? for? I would imagine it's a citrate yeah. molecule, whether it's potassium, magnesium, or calcium. Correct. It's just that you won't, it's difficult to get decent amounts of citrate when you utilizing anything but sodium. Um, but here's, here's what's really important. You, you don't want to drink it in solution because it will just, it's tough on the, uh, on the gut. So it's really something you want to take with food, especially with at least 20, 25 grams of carbs. And you take it four hours before performance, which is really when you should be having your protein meal is about four hours before your performance. You don't want to have like steak two hours before performance. That's just too close. So it's, it's nice that you can dose the citrate with food so you can tolerate it better. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, since it peaks out about four hours, it'd be a perfect time to do the urinary pH measurement too. So you're probably going to be pretty high on the urinary pH. Yeah. And you did that. That's a really good point too, is that you can, it's a tool you can actually use to measure um, the alkalinity of the body, because you're not going to be able to really test your blood to see if you're hitting mm-hmm. peak alkalosis unless well, most of us, some people would have access to a blood gas, but it's not easy or convenient. Right. So, so in regards to the regular person, they might be able to just test their urinary pH to make sure their alkalosis is actually, you know, working their regimen. Yeah. yeah it's, it's so great. That's such a practical, practical, useful tool. Uh, and we just need to emphasize that because it's optimizing your pH is really important. There's a lot of uh, many, many books written about the uh, alkaline diets and such, and that you can, as you mentioned, modify it with your diet. But it's so if we're having a high meat diet, you really need to neutralize that some way with with these uh, alkaline salts. Yeah. So 
That's a great recommendation. So uh, what type of doses are you looking at for performance and maybe just for diet optimization, even if you're not using exercise therapeutically, like you should? <laughs> right. Uh, five grams of sodium citrate inhibits 60 milliequivalents of acid. And an average carnivore is going to produce 150 to 200 milliequivalents of acid. Mm -hmm. In order to neutralize that, you would need anywhere from like five grams of sodium citrate, probably about three times a day is going to help neutralize all that acid, which is great. You really want to be at a net acid excretion of zero because even if your body is able to excrete acid, which it is, it's still damaging on the kidneys to do that. So you want to try to get it to a neutral um, acid excretion. And, and I would assume radically increases your risk of osteoporosis because you, your body's going to neutralize it one way or the other, and you don't want to neutralize it from the minerals in your bones. Right. Yeah. So how, how this works is that the negatively charged sulfite, uh, the sulfate ions that are released when you consume animal foods have to be matched with a positively charged potassium, magnesium, calcium, sodium. And it will pull that from bone if you don't have enough uh, alkaline minerals on board. And the balance studies in the 1960s, Jack Lennon and his uh, group confirmed that dietary acid leads to a tremendous loss of calcium from bone. It's just astronomical how much comes out. And so we know that basically dietary acid does contribute to bone loss through those balance studies. Well, that's good. So I think we've discussed most of the items that I recall from the book, but is there anything that we missed or didn't that you'd like to mention now about the hydration? I think we covered hydration pretty well. I mean, uh, then we go into things like blood flow restriction and, and stuff like that, like the biohacks. Well, we could. I mean, I'm a big fan of blood flow restriction, huge, but th there's just not enough time to go into it. And I think there's other points I'd like to emphasize that you discuss really, really well in the book, which is the protein intake. And I can share a personal story in that I was seriously confused on this because I had a mentor, Ron Rosedale, who was overly concerned. And I think Seam uh, has done some really good uh, videos on this about protein activating mTOR and increasing cancer and a whole variety of other metabolic diseases. So I went to a relatively low protein diet, probably 0.7, either 0.6 to 0.8 uh, grams per kilogram and uh, suffered the consequences. And since I understood the higher doses that required, I, I put on 20, 25 pounds of muscle mass. So it is essential. You've got to have protein. So why don't, why don't you review this? Because people need to know, and it's easy. We, well, I recommend an app called Chronometer where you can easily and freely put in, input your data, measuring of your food and measuring it with a kitchen digital scale. And then you could find out within a 10th of a gram how much protein you're eating. So you don't have to guess. So th th then you can figure out the numbers that you're going to tell us about in a moment. Sure, Seam, why don't you take uh, this one? And if I, I can come in later on too, if needed. Yeah, sure. Uh, maybe I'll just briefly mention about the idea of mTOR and uh, longevity. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, in animal studies, it is associated that uh, mTOR activation or excess mTOR can be a link to some accelerated aging and uh, some cancers, but there's no human studies. And uh, at least when it comes to like exercise performance and mTOR is still quite central to things like uh, muscle protein synthesis and muscle growth. And uh, we also know that muscle is very important for longevity and anti-aging. So it's, um, I think, yeah, like the kind of worries about that being, uh, are, can be a bit overblown. And I mean, protein isn't the only thing that activates mTOR, it's also carbs and insulin. So yeah, <laughs> you're like uh, screwed either way if you're uh, 
wanting to restrict mTOR. Uh, but from an exercise perspective specifically, then yeah, protein is quite uh, important, at least for um, these uh, resistance training sports and the muscle building sports. And, you know, obviously athletes have generally more muscle mass and they need that muscle mass to perform uh, as well. If you we talk about, you know, how much protein, especially to... Well, before consume, we talk about how much, I just you, you didn't mention what you said so eloquently in your video. Describe how it's the it's the time of activation of mTORs that's mm. so crucial. And if you're eating over 16 hours a day, you're going to activate it all day long. This is when you're sleeping. Where if yeah. you do engage in time restricted eating, it's minimized. It's not as, not not the issue that people think it is. Yeah. So like basically, there's the there's a limit of how much mTOR you're going to basically activate in uh, one sitting. So there's because the amount of protein synthesis is also limited. And uh, that threshold is around 20 to 40 grams of protein in one sitting. So you're not going to activate more muscle protein synthesis um, by consuming more protein. So it doesn't matter if you eat 100 grams of protein or 20 grams of protein in one sitting, you're still going to activate the same amount of mTOR. Um, because you know, there's no direct way to look at uh, whether or not you activate mTOR. You look at it through like IGF-1 levels or protein synthesis levels. Um, so yeah, that's the only way to know. And there is a limit basically. And if you eat, yeah, like, you know, six times a day, then you're still going to turn on mTOR, even if you eat like very few calories, even if you eat like a hundred calories or, um, 10 grams of protein, you're on a low protein diet, you're eating 10 grams of protein, but you're eating six times a day, then you're still spiking your mTOR <laughs> several times. And, uh, let's say compared to eating two times a day or once a day, that even if you are eating 200 grams of protein, for example, <laughs> in one sitting, then uh, you're not going to activate more mTOR because it's it's going to, it's going to be capped off. That's why like athletes and bodybuilders are eating six times a day to basically have their protein synthesis elevated frequently so that they will build more muscle and uh, basically recover faster. Um, so that's why, let's say, the athlete would be eating more frequently whereas the average person and it doesn't matter how much protein they're eating if you're eating in a confined eating window then um, the eating frequency basically matters in terms of how much mTOR you're going to activate over the course of 24 hours not the actual amount of uh, protein so uh, so the athlete grams. eating six times a day for increased muscle mass is probably not serving himself well for the long term because he's overactivating mTOR yeah, I mean, maybe like we, we, we don't have like an actual human studies to, yeah, like say that it definitely will be a shorter uh, lifespan because of that. Uh, I mean, maybe it wouldn't be the best. It would be still too beneficial to practice some aspects of time restricted eating for other reasons for like metabolic flexibility, for example, it would be still better to have like some periods where you don't eat. Uh, but let's say, I mean, like the bodybuilding, the professional bodybuilding, the mass monsters, they're like, they're not doing it for the health anyway. So <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's for sure. All right. So why don't you go into the actual protein levels that we need now to build up? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the RDA is like quite low. It's like 0.4 grams per pound of uh, body weight. And you, you said you consume 0.7 grams per kilogram, which I think would be around the same amount of the RDA or even like with less. Um, but the research, at least even if, at least for like elderly people, it also finds that the higher protein intake is better for maintaining muscle mass and uh, bone density and reducing frailty, those kind of things. Uh, so the RDA itself is already considered inadequate for even like regular people. When it comes to just fitness or sports, uh, your training, then the demands 
would increase exponentially as well. And um, in the book, we uh, outline this kind of um, meta-analysis or reviews where they look at, you know, how much protein do you actually need, then define that the uh, kind of optimal peak or the kind of threshold, again, is around like 1.6 grams per kilogram of uh, body weight, or which translates into like 0.8 to 1.0 grams per pound of uh, body weight. And uh, that's the kind of, you're not going to be building more muscle if you eat more protein than that. So that's kind of the maximal effective uh, threshold. But they do find in studies that if you eat more than that, like three grams per pound uh, or something like that, then uh, you're not going to build more muscle, but you do burn more fat especially or you put on less fat if you're in a calorie surplus and you tend to also uh, burn more fat or you're able to lose uh, weight faster as well because protein is not only important for the protein synthesis and recovery and muscle adaptations but also of the kind of satiety and thermic effect they are also very powerful in terms of weight management and uh, weight loss so high protein diets are better for at least for all resistance sports uh, resistance race sports maybe like the, yeah, the um, endurance athlete may need a little bit less protein than the resistance training athlete. Uh, but uh, for the weight loss, the high protein diet is always better in, in research. Like the people who are on high protein diets, they always, at least if calories are equal, they always lose more weight because you, you uh, burn more calories for digesting uh, the protein. Like uh, it's a 30% of uh, protein uh, gets uh, converted or burned off as energy. Or the calories for protein, uh, whereas for carbohydrates, it's only 7%, and fat is uh, 1% or even like 2% or something like that. And uh, what about those who are older, say over 60, 65? Does the, I, I believe the, the protein needs increase or recommendations increase? For the elderly, it also um, appears that the high protein intake is better for like reducing risk of frailty and uh, osteoporosis and uh, hip fractures. Uh, the actual amount is you know, hard to tell, um, although like a higher protein intake, I mean, any, anything between, let's say, 0.7 uh, up to 1.0 grams per pound of body weight is uh, good, I think, even, if, even for the elderly, um, even if they're not like exercising hard or they're not like doing regular resistance training, even for them, I think 0.7 is kind of the bare minimum. Uh, 0.8 is pretty good as well. And 1.0 grams per pound of body weight is kind of the upper threshold where you don't see like any additional benefits for muscle growth. So if you're taking these higher protein intakes, uh, that is likely going to increase the acidity of your blood. So I'm wondering if you personally have uh, incorporated a alkalizing mineral supplementation regimen to compensate for that. Uh, I do, like, I do uh, eat a lot of vegetables, <laughs> like I'm not eating a full meat diet. Um, I also consume some baking soda, um, not all the time, but uh, yeah, I, I have like some, these uh, bicarbonate waters as well that I, okay. I consume. Yeah. But not, not the specific so it, like Gerald Steiner, right? Yeah. 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 That, that one's definitely good. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I eat potatoes with steak because the potatoes offset the acid from, mm. from the steak. So if you have a decent balance in your diet, you can offset the acid through things like um, bananas, potatoes, beans, if you tolerate those types of foods. 
Now, there may be some reasons for many not to consider those foods, but uh, but if you do, but they do have their benefits. There's no question. So, so can you give us your take on the protein recommendation? Well, to address your question of do, do the elderly need more protein, I think the from the perspective of they're glutathione deficient typically, and so they need really? they need more cysteine to to form the glutathione. Mm-hmm. So that's why we see that higher protein intakes in the elderly uh, is beneficial. Um, that's one reason in regards to, for like an athlete, the evidence is pretty clear that you want about 30 grams of protein four times a day, um, as a minimum, if you do a whole body workout, you actually want to increase that to about 40 grams of protein in regards to maximizing muscle protein synthesis. And then the data is pretty clear too, that taking 30 to 40 grams of casein, which is a long acting protein about 30 minutes before bedtime will also help maximize muscle protein synthesis. But a four times a day eating regimen seriously conflicts with the t- time restricted eating protocol is hard to fit in four well, meals in like six to eight hours. Well, here's the thing though, right? It's you're almost, when you do, a, let's say a heavy lifting session, mm-hmm. that's like almost like fasting for four hours, right? In a way, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you're not, you're, you're, you're sort of activating or you're putting yourself in a catabolic state. You're accelerating. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're sort of how, how quickly you get into a fasted state. So yes, technically eating four times a day versus eating twice a day is, uh, you're less activating autophagy, but from a just strictly muscle protein synthesis perspective, the four times today seems to be the best to maximize muscle protein synthesis. I'm curious, what is your, your eating window? I typically eat if I, on a day that I work out, I eat three times a day. If I don't work out that day, I typically only eat twice a day. So what, what's the window? How many hours are you eating? Usually um, I actually just eat an early dinner. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll have breakfast and I, I actually target protein. I have a high protein meal during breakfast, like steak and eggs with like uh, potatoes or bananas. And that will actually help keep me satiated. And then if I'm not working out that day, I might only have dinner at like 3 PM. If I am working out that day, I will have lunch at probably noon. And then I'll have an early dinner, maybe like four o'clock. And then I'm not eating from four all the way to 9 AM. So I don't know how many hours that turns out to be fasted, but it's basically having an early dinner is what's important because yeah, yeah. that's the key. That's definitely a key. Eating at least three hours before you go to bed for sure. Yes. From no a re- not just not just from like a, a autophagy time restricted eating standpoint, a lot of people have hidden acid reflux and causing themselves Barrett's esophagus. Mm-hmm. They didn't realize it because they're laying down within an hour of eating every night. So mm-hmm. eating an early dinner is actually really important, not just from autophagy perspective, but also from that perspective of refluxing at night. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, a really important principle, and I'm pretty sure you address this in the book, is that you can't exercise every day. You're going to build, just dig a, dig a hole, deep hole that you'll never get out of. You're going to, you need repair and recovery. So what is your strategy for implementing recovery into the exercise regimen? Yeah. So recovery, if you're talking about in a training camp and you need to train hard the next day. Well, let's not go training camp. I mean, most people are not going to go in training camp. I mean, <laughs> I know the book is designed for people in it, but we're looking at people who are just living, living normal lives and most of them elderly. 
Yeah. So to improve recovery in regards to there's, there's definitely certain strategies to reduce delayed onset muscle soreness, high dose omega threes, like three to four grams of EPA and DHA will help reduce delayed onset muscle soreness, increase muscle protein synthesis, um, increase fat burning as well with higher doses of omega threes, like wild salmon, um, beetroot juice prior to exercise is a great way to reduce delayed onset muscle soreness as well and improve. But it's recovery. high, it's high in oxalates. Beetroot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. But it, and it also makes great nitric oxide too. It's a great pre precursor for it. Right. And so L-citrulline or citrulline malate can also help with recovery as well. Same with the alkalinity. It's going to help with recovery. Um, and, and the salt solutions will too, because uh, of blood volume expansion in that increases the removal of waste um, and build up as well, but actually submerging the body in water um, and, and preferably cool water, which is typically 64 to 84 degrees Fahrenheit will also help to improve recovery. Um, usually you want to be uh, head out water immersion and it's the opposite of exercise. You're eliminating gravity. So there's less neuronal activity. Um, there's increased ATP synthesis. You, you can recover better simply basically going into a bath. And, and if it's cool, we talk about pre-cooling strategies in the book and how to cool the body to dramatically improve performance as well using uh, glabrous skin cooling, which is essentially cooling the face, the palms of the hands, and the bottoms of the feet. That can help to improve performance and recovery as well. Well, those are, I mean, it, I, what I was looking for is like, how, many, how do you figure out when you're not going to, when you need to take a day off, a complete day off and you're not doing it. I mean, I guess you could uh, increase, increase the likelihood that you'll need to take that day off with these strategies, but you're still gonna need to take a day off. So how do you, what, what's your recommendation? Yeah, if you're trained to near fatigue or fatigue, then yes, you will need to take days off. But if you're just you know doing reps to do reps and you're not actually even going near fatigue, you might not actually need to take a day off. And then, really? really? Yeah, because you're not, that's really the key to, to growth, to muscle protein synthesis. It's not necessarily how much you're doing. It's getting near fatigue or to fatigue every time you do a set. That's the key. You can be lifting at 20% of your one rep max, but if you lift that weight to near failure or failure, you will absolutely increase muscle protein synthesis and strength. So Seem, do you have any feedback on that? Um, yeah, well, I, I think, yeah, it depends on, you know, there's different variables. You manipulate like the intensity and the frequency and the volume. And I, th I think like, especially if you're like a natural athlete, then you can only choose two. So you could train every day, uh, but in that case, you have to either keep the intensity low or the volume low. So like gymnasts, they train every day, uh, but they train at um, low, you know, they're not going max out all the time. They're training uh, with high volume and many hours a day, uh, but with high frequency, but they're not like reaching complete failure. Or like, you know, the Bulgarian method, which is used in uh, weightlifters, where they basically train near maximum intensity or near maximum weights with their lifts or basically every day even sometimes many several times a day but they keep the volume very low so they literally do only one set or one rep of their uh, max intensity uh, lift so yeah i mean you could get away with training every day i've done it many times like i've trained calisthenics every day uh, for a long time and um, but if i'm doing like higher intensity and higher volume like in the gym um, yeah, literally reaching near failure with all many different exercises. Then in that case, I do feel that yeah, like rest day is very kind of needed or is actually better for the performance uh, because you know the body can only 
you know, adapt to a certain point. If it's always forced to recover from the exercise, then it never has the opportunity to adapt. So it adapts, which means getting to a higher baseline, gets stronger and you know, faster. For that to happen, it needs some time off. Uh, whereas if you constantly keep hammering the body again, then it's always stuck in this like recovery trap of being able to just recover. Like you can rec you can train every day and recover, but if you're not making progress, you're not getting stronger uh, or faster or whatever, then um, then you probably have to kind of dial down some of the uh, frequency. Do you, do you find the biometrics from apps like the Aura Ring helpful? Because uh, one of the metrics that they seems to be correlated with the, the need for having an easy day is the lowest heart rate of your night of your of the, the night at the time that it occurs if it goes very close to when you wake up that probably means you're, you should take a day off or consider working out at a lower capacity whereas if it occurs very early you're ready to kill it i do think yeah like hrv and uh or even like a regular body temperature and um heart rate those things yeah can just indicate how um, recovered your body could be but even like then just regular things like yours are you sore <laughs> do you have brain fog do you have uh, depression or depressive symptoms and uh, lack of motivation those kind of things are also like very clear signs uh, that can be um, telling you whether or not you should train hard or uh, take a rest okay. that's good yeah i mean this is so important it's one of the keys that you you have to understand that you cannot really exercise every day, unless you manipulate the variables, like you suggest, and you don't really train to failure, and you don't have a lot of high volume, and then you, then you can get away with it, for sure. Right. But you're not going to get a lot of benefits if you do that. <laughs> You'll get some, for sure, but you know, right. you're not going to, you're, you need I mean, to challenge yourself. Essentially, if you're training to failure, then you probably shouldn't lift that muscle group more than four times a week. Mm -hmm. I would not go above that. Yeah, I would agree. Maybe three times because exactly. yeah, it forced pushing that. That's the upper, I would say, tolerable limit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so that uh, that's what I like to do is I like to isolate body parts and then have two days a week where it's more comprehensive. You know, I'll do a biceps of one day, just biceps. I crush it with like six or seven different workouts, and then a triceps, and then a shoulders day, then an upper body and a lower body. So. You got, if, I think that helps too, is if you focus it on body parts rather than through the whole body. I mean, it's hard. You could legitimately probably spend four hours working out your whole body. <laughs> There's so many different things you can do. Sure. Uh, so, um, all right. So uh, any other points you'd like to make? Just, I would say the cooling strategies. Um, you can oh, yeah, yeah. You control the body, uh, pre-cooling the body. Oh, wait, before, before you go into the cooling strategies, you had mentioned that you could cool down as part of the recovery. But I just wanted you to, I forgot to ask you about that cooling down versus uh, abolishing some of the benefits of the, the, the exercise you just did because it, it aborts that, that process right. of inflammation that, that contributes to the activation of the hormone of the exercise benefits. So right. how do you balance that out? Yeah. So like going into like a cold shower isn't enough to inhibit hypertrophy or strength, but going into like a cold ice bath will reduce hypertrophy and strength, but it will dramatically improve how quick you recover out to 96 hours. And so one way around this where you get benefits for recovery, but you don't get such a reduction in hypertrophy or strength is to go into a cool bath. So instead of going into a bath that's 59 Fahrenheit or less, you go into a cool bath between 64 and 84 Fahrenheit. And that way you can inhibit some of the inflammation, but you're not completely shutting it down. Okay. 
64 is still a bit uncomfortable, but like high 60s would be better. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, that, 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 that's a good answer. So why don't you review some of the cooling strategy because, strategies because you do that very well in the book and really highlight some things like the cool mist that are being used now that and this cooling the glabrous skin in the palms to uh, allow you to exercise more efficiently. So, I mean, this is like brand new stuff. Yeah, I mean, most athletes get it wrong. They will cool the back of their neck or their chest when they get hot, especially UFC fighters. You see this all the time. Their coaches are cooling off their chest or their back with ice packs. But that's not where the glabrous skin is. And, and the glabrous skin is innervated with special blood vessels that can dilate and bring in cold directly from the venous supply right into the arterial supply. So they bypass the capillaries. So you can cool the body very quickly when you cool the glabrous skin. And the glabrous skin is contained in the palms of the hands, your ears, the face, particularly the forehead and the cheeks and the bottoms of the feet. So this is why if, on a hot day, if you just put the bottom of your feet in a pool, you cool off your whole body so quickly, despite only cooling off maybe 1% of your surface area. And it's because of the, the AVAs that are highly uh, dense in those areas where that's how you cool the body off. It's twice and effective. The AVAs are arterial venous anastomosis. Anastomosis. Why don't you describe, why don't you describe what those are? Yeah, so the, the arteriovenous anastomoses are blood vessels that have a much larger diameter and they bypass the capillaries. So they can basically dump heat or bring in cold directly from the venous supply right to the arterial supply. And that basically that cools you off much faster. And, and the studies show that cooling the glabrous skin is twice as effective than cooling, let's say, the chest or the back. And in really hot situations, the glabrous skin can dump five times as much heat as compared to non-glabrous skin. And the best way to cool those skin surfaces down is using water because water conducts heat slash cold two to four times better. So simply putting your palms in, in cold water in the bottoms of your feet in cold water, you do that for 30 minutes and you're going to drop the goal for pre-cooling the body is to drop core body temperature by 0.5 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 0.3 degrees Celsius. And you see the dramatic improvements in performance because you have a larger tank to soak up all the heat before you hit a critical core body temperature. And have to sweat and lose your electrolytes. Exactly. True. Yeah, that's yep. good. Yeah, but they even got, I think you reviewed it in your book where they had this cool mitt now that's, I, I don't even know what's available where basically they've got a pump and pumping ice cold water into this vacuum. Yep. It's a sub-atmospheric temperature uh, or a sub-atmospheric sub um, chamber essentially, which pulls more blood to the palms. And then you cool the palms on like a metal plate. Mm -hmm. Um, but you don't need anything that high tech. It, the, the key here is to add as many glabrous skin locations and cool them down simultaneously as you can. And actually they've done, they've compared cooling the bottoms of the feet at the simultaneously versus cooling the palms of the hands simultaneously. And actually the feet are better, but when you start adding them together, you get additive benefits. And what's the best, if you're going to just use the low tech approach and submerge your hands and feet in, in the water, uh, ice cold water would be counterproductive because it's gonna cause the vessels to constrict and, and actually increase your body, potentially increase your body temperature. So what's the sweet spot for the temperature and how much time do you need to do it? Yeah, for sure. If you're pre-cooling the body, um, you want to avoid temperatures of water of 59 Fahrenheit or less because that can actually inhibit performance. Uh, that ideally you want to be between that 64 and 84 degrees Fahrenheit, which is considered a cool water bath or, or cool water. 
And you can start at 84 and you can slowly notch your way down. Now, what the studies show is that if you're using 84 Fahrenheit water, it's probably going to take you an hour to drop uh, half a degree Fahrenheit. But if you're using 64, probably only take you 20 to 30 minutes, depending on how much surface area you're cooling to. Now, it occurs to me, this is one of the reasons why I can walk very comfortably in the summer at noon on the beach, because I'm always walking in the ocean, you know, right. with my, my feet have sub, have submerged typically to my ankles, but uh, it's, it's cooling me down when I, when, you know, you got the sun on you and it's dissipating the heat. Right. And I mean, if you, you don't even have to do pre-cooling, you can do this during training. It's been shown if you cool glabrous skin, um, like cooling both of the palms, you can increase the reps on a bench and how much you do pull-ups by like 40%. Um, just cooling the palms during uh, the, the rest periods. So you get really good benefits with cooling the body. Well, you definitely hit the target. You give us a lot of great information uh, orally in this interview, but certainly it's in the book. So uh, this is just a taste because there's a lot of other good pieces of information. And as I said, I'm a strong believer in exercise and I really believe this book should be in your library. So uh, you can head over to your favorite sources of acquiring books and pick it up uh, in all the different formats. Uh, so congratulations on uh, putting that together. Appreciate that, Joe. Now, did you, yeah, did you, yeah is it, do you have uh, a website for the book? I neglected to ask, or is it uh, just? Yeah, I mean, they could go on uh, drjamesdenick.com, but the best way is just Amazon. Okay. Yeah. All right, sounds good. All right, well, you keep up the good work. You guys are always surprising me. Appreciate it, thank you. <laughs>